Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Broken Oars Podcast, with me, the Northern One, and the absence of the Southern One leads you to expect that this might well be another episode of the Broken Oars University series, where we talk about various topics in depth, or in as much depth as I, a Northern Monkey, can manage. It's really the time of year for lectures, obviously it's Christmas, and Christmas is all about moralising from on high. But seriously, we have the Wreath Lectures on the BBC, which are always worth a a listen or a watch, depending upon who they've got on. We have the government lecturing us literally every day, telling us that Christmas is being ruined by nurses and by railway workers and by teachers and by anyone, really, who has the temerity to take strike action to ask for a better deal than they've currently got. Uh, There's a pretty savage irony there, because the thing is that there is quite literally no distance whatsoever between being a nurse and being a hard-working Briton, or being a railway worker and being a hard-working Briton, or being a teacher and being a hard-working Briton, or being a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or a bricklayer and being a hard-working Briton. The people who are striking are actually hard-working Britons. So the divide-and-conquer thing should really not be happening. We're all grown-ups now. We're in the 21st century. It's been going on since Caesar. It was one of his favourite tactics, and we should really, really be seeing through it. But that's not what I'm hoping to talk about today. No, I would like to talk about a subject that I've been turning over pretty much, well, ever since I first got in a boat. And no, it's not wise it always bow's fault. I've sat at bow, and when I've sat at bow, It was always stroked fault. It just was. It was just the way it was. I'm going to talk about what I perceive to be the links between music and rowing. Now, I'm not going to talk about it in the sense that um, Lou and I might talk about it, which is what sort of music is really, really good to train to, you know, to use when you're on the erg or or to get yourself psyched up before races or sessions or anything like that. There is a school of thought. I've recently had a chat with Alex Lamble of Newcastle University, and Newcastle do all of their ergs without any music whatsoever. There's no motivation from the loudspeaker. So it's very much um, what Kirsty Wade used to say, you can either associate with what you're doing or you can disassociate with what you're doing. This was back when I was running at Bladen Harriers, when people started using Walkmans and Discmans and that kind of thing to help them in their sessions. You use music to distract you from the fact that the session is difficult or to get you through it, or you can engage with the session and develop your own mental resiliencies and strategies for getting through it. No, this isn't music to train to. This is what I think of as being pretty fundamental equivalences between the discipline and craft and pursuit of rowing and the discipline and craft and pursuit of music. And without further ado, a little musical sting.
you'll notice that the musical sting had nothing to do with Gordon from Wall's End. That's just how we roll. And if that's a little bit too scalar and a little bit too linear and a little bit too, I'm sorry, what has this got to do with being in a boat? Something a little bit more populist. So there are some musical bona fides. I can, you know, put at least one and a half chords together. Sometimes some of the notes are in the right place and stuff like that. So let's get into it. Let's get into the links between music and rowing, eh? So first of all, I'd like to dedicate this to one of our listeners. As I promised that I'd get the ideas that I've been turning over in my head for what feels like centuries now, out and into some kind of form or episode or podcast for her. So for Miss F.J. Abramchuk, this is for you. And if I have mispronounced your name, well, then my Latvian grandfather, Teofilis Jakubowskis, will come down from heaven, or more likely Valhalla in his case, and beat the living bejesus out of me for neglecting the sacred ancestors, um, languages of my ancestors and the ability to pronounce things. It's a tough Latvian love, but as anyone who listens regularly will know, I can barely speak English, let alone Latvian, Russian, Czechoslovakian, Polish, German, Finnish, French, and all of the other ones that he could. So what's the point that I'm trying to make here? This is for really anyone else who listens to Broken Oars regularly and anyone who's ever got in a boat. It might seem really esoteric that I'm going to somehow link the practice of scales and arpeggios to the practice of smacking a boat down a river but I fundamentally believe that they are one and the same. I believe that there are fundamental equivalences between both disciplines, between both practices, between both arts. Now, this isn't going to be one of those hard data episodes where numbers and splits and times and distances are thrown around like confetti, but don't switch off. I know that rowers like those things. I like those things, even though my splits really make very, very depressing reading nowadays. And I basically head over to Lewin's Instagram page to make myself feel worse as he smacks out session after session of just horse-like, unbelievable physicality. But I think that this might be of interest to Broken Oars listeners. Um, because I know how rowing makes me feel. And if rowing makes me feel that, as an emotionally spavined northerner with the empathetic capacity of a lug wrench and the spiritual enlightenment of a naturalized bowsider, well, it might just chime with some of the feelings that you've had too about the sport and the processes involved in rowing and about how it makes you feel and about why we do it and about how we do it. And I know that that's a big claim, but you know, this is Broken Oz podcast. We do big claims and usually we manage to back it up. Have we told you that Mahe Drysdale's coming on? Well, he is. That's a big claim. But thanks to James Widmer at Tyne United, he'll be coming on just as soon as he can sort his schedule out, which I imagine involves being some kind of Viking Antipodean barbarian and pillaging places. 
Um, if you are going to listen to this one while doing Christmassy things, wrapping presents, um, making Aberdeen Rowies for the Christmas morning breakfast, which is a bit of a tradition in our household, or any of those kind of things, I would just like to point out that there will be no swearing. So you can play this with little ones around if you like. A recent spiritual um, awakening, I suppose you'd call it, of mine, means I no longer swear, which probably means that Broken Oars podcast will no longer be as much fun. But I think there are other words and I'm going to use them. And there will be, so you can play it while little ones are around and not um, hear any F-bombs or B-bombs or any of the, the, the language bombs that might lead you to rush towards them to clap your hands over their ears. There's going to be no long apologetic preamble this time about polymathery, whatever the living bejesus that is, or whether or not I'm qualified to talk about such things. Let's get straight to it. So, here's the pitch, as they say in America, about things that are pitched, I guess. I think that there are fundamental equivalences between being a rower and rowing, and being a musician and playing music. There. I've said it. That's it. Shall we all go home now? Because beware, if we go on and people outside of rowing listen to this, we might shatter together forever the idea that rowers are just hearty. Rah, 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 rugger buggers on water. And shine a light into the more mechanical and esoteric and logistical and indeed spiritual and emotional aspects of rowing. But to get there, to get to those spiritual and emotional aspects, we're going to have to talk about mechanical and logistical processes that are involved in rowing and that are involved in the act of making music too because the reality is, and this is kind of the second point after the pitch, this is pitch point two, I suppose. The reality is that before we get to any state of grace in a boat, and if you row, you know what I'm talking about. You know about those outings where it just feels like it's effortless and the boat is flying and you are so in sync you could just row this groove forever before we get to any state of grace like that in a boat or indeed on an instrument there are an awful lot of mechanical engagements required first so what is the basic thesis here oh northern one and can we have lewin back because he stops you doing this kind of stuff this kind of chuntering on nonsense well the thesis is really as simple as that i think if you're a rower and you row you operate in the same way and fundamentally understand and know what it's like to be a musician and play music and vice versa if you're a musician and you play music you operate in the same way and fundamentally understand and know what it's like to be a rower and to row and here's the kicker you know the other the, the, you know we have the Heimlich and the Unheimlich and we can get into more literary theory if you want but after the infinite story I really don't think we should you know the other even if you don't play an instrument at all and only row and you know you're the other even if you've never been in a boat before and you only play music why? okay let's break it down well first of all first of all there are cultural overlaps I guess this is maybe point one there are cultural over overlaps. So for a start, rowing and music are, unfortunately, both marginal activities in the wider scheme of what people in the UK do. 
less people nowadays play a musical instrument than they did when a piano in the front room was the norm. And that trope is not a middle-class drawing room. I, I say, Jacinda, let's, let's go in and listen to Julian on the piano. I, I, he, I hear he's got his latest Greek right down. The piano in the front room was a staple of poor working-class families too. And the idea that if you were a working-class boy or girl, you, you, you had a couple of options to get out. You could, you could be really good at football and get out that way or you could become a musician and a rock star or a singer and get out that way because if it wasn't that it was the factory the mine or the 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 job at Woolworths or whatever before the advent of radio tv streaming devices what have you people genuinely did get together around the piano to sing in front rooms or in community centers or in pubs or even in churches and things like that and they played together. There were folk sessions and there were jazz sessions and there were jam sessions. You know, this is not a modern phenomenon, the idea of the, of the open mic. They had these in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s to get people, people would just take their guitar along or take their saxophone along or take their kit along and play with others. It was about connection and community, but it was also about making music. Now. Nowadays, the intake into a lot of music schools, like, I don't know, um, the one in Manchester, uh, just, just down from where I used to work, Royal Northern College of Music. The intake there, nowadays, will be predominantly middle class. Why is that? Because teaching music in schools has been run down to the point where if you're good enough to do a degree in music at a school like the Royal Northern College or somewhere like that, your parents have already paid for years and years and years of private lessons. Why? Because music isn't taught as widely in state schools as it was. I remember learning about briefs and semi-briefs and crotchets and minims and singing along in class with the, with the music teacher. I went to a Catholic school, so I basically sang every morning because we had assembly every morning and we went to church regularly and we did all of that kind of stuff. So there was music constantly around me, but it's not as widespread now. So if you get to the point where you're going to do your degree in music or uh, something like that, or your scholarship in music, you've probably had private lessons because the musical forms that these schools teach, and I know that places like Sheffield do, um, they do folk music and things like that. Newcastle has a folk music department. But if you're going to do a degree in music, you're going to be doing the classical repertoire which means you've had years and years of lessons and training in the classical style. Um, so we're talking about middle-class interests as well as middle-class money, because you need money to pay for um, music lessons, and classical music tends to be a, a middle to upper middle-class interest. There are plenty of examples of working-class people who absolutely adore classical music. Mark Thomas, the comedian, did an amazing show um, about his father's love of opera. His father was a working class builder. You had working class community choirs. You had, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic, but if you really want to sing hymns that swing, go to a Methodist chapel because by God, those buggers can play. Buggers is not a swear word. I'm not rescinding on my promise not to swear in this. There are lots of examples of working class music and working class engagement with the arts. But nowadays, nowadays in a more secular age, in a more dumbed down age, middle class interests as well as middle class money. So traditional instruments I'm talking about, I'm not talking about being able to mix banging hip hop beats or 
Avicii-style electronic dance music or being able to spit bars over the latest tracks on grime or anything like that. I'm talking about the traditional canon, the traditional views of music. And if we're doing that, we're talking about nowadays predominantly middle-class interests and middle-class money. And I'm talking in that context about traditional instruments in the classical canon there is a thriving culture of electronic music making that comes from what used to be called the working class. Um, but now, unfortunately, it tends to be labelled as the underclass, or worse, it's given an economic designation. But while the amount of people playing to a given standard might have fallen per capita, music making is still a widespread thing. When I moved back to Newcastle, I joined a male choir. It was one of the ways music was something that was important to me and something that had been removed from my life and reconnecting with it was important. So I joined a Newcastle Men's Choir and they're great and they're, and they're a great bunch of, of lads. And I say lads, most of them are in their 60s and 70s, God bless them, all of them. But the thing about Newcastle is that all of the men are lads and all of the women are lasses and all of the men are called Jackie and actually quite a few of the lasses are when they're not being called war lass and we all have a whippet and we all eat stotty cakes and we play football on the cobbles of the streets that overlook the Tyne, the Tyne, the Mucky Tyne, the Queen of all the rivers. It's just the way it is. But there are men's choirs, there are women's choirs, there are junior choirs, there are youth orchestras, there are there are orchestras for retirees, there are open mic nights in pubs, in upstairs in pubs, in downstairs in pubs, in community centres, there are jam nights, there are jazz nights, there are small hall gigs. One of the very best musicians in the world, in Martin Simpson, who is an outstanding acoustic guitar player and one of the best interpreters of the folk canon that you will ever hear, will come and play at your local community centre if you give him a ring and sell some tickets. You can see the folk equivalent of Maxim Wengerov from a distance of about 10 feet and then have a chat with him over a cup of tea in the interval. If we're being honest, music making and the people who make music and people out there who are engaged with music, it's probably more widespread than rowing, if we're being honest. Rowing participation numbers, as we've said on Broken Oars podcast over and over and over again, are down. It is the best sport. We all know it's the best sport. It's the best sport, the best practice and the best pursuit in the world. Yes, we all know that. But it is still a fundamentally niche sport. It's still a fundamentally minority sport. And it too is unfortunately in this country bound up with class assumptions. Rowers are middle class. Rowers went to private school where they learned to row. Rowers are all Henley and rah, 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 rah. But let's not forget the only reason that rowing is class bound in Britain is because Britain is class bound. There is no other reason than that. And it doesn't and shouldn't stay class-bound if we want this sport that we all love not to shrink and reduce itself to some pre-war-based fantasy of what we used to be, where only the rich can and should do it, and it all becomes about the Henley Bun fight in July and the boat race. Nostalgia for what was is the fatal addiction of Britain and Britons. You know what I mean. And unfortunately, it's driven by the cultural narratives that were fed daily and it's absolute and utter nonsense the good old days weren't that good the good old days weren't great the good old days weren't great when your five-year-old child would work a 16-hour shift in the mine 
They weren't that fantastic. My grandparents knew the hungry 20s and 30s. They knew how vital the post-war settlement was in changing their lives and the lives of their children. The hungry 20s and 30s were like what's now becoming the hungry 20s and 30s in this century, yet another abysmal dereliction of duty on the part of a ruling elite who promised a land fit for heroes during the First World War and instead shot them when they had the temerity to ask for the right for a day's wage for a day's pay. And while we venerate Churchill because he did the right thing at the right time in 1939, he was the one who ordered the police and the military out and said, yes, it's fine, you can shoot the striking miners at Tony Pandy and various other places. And to come back to rowing, there is a long and noble history of working class rowers, rowing clubs and watermen that doesn't just start and end with Harry Clasper, but that goes back centuries but that you very rarely hear about because it doesn't fit the presented, accepted narrative of what rowing in this country is. There are many, many fine community-based clubs who are defying the stereotypes that you have to be rich or middle class or work in an elite profession to get into rowing. London Youth Rowing, for one. Shout out to Hodge and all of the work that that team is doing. Hinksy, Hinksy School, for another. Fantastic. And I'm going to put a shout out for Tyne United, which does sterling work getting rowing out into the community and into state schools and introducing people to it. And I'm going to give a shout out to Jonty. Hello, Jonty. Hello, Mr. Reed. Because he works tirelessly to pass on his love of the best sport in the world to young people. And that's what rowing can be. It doesn't have to be about the bun fight. It doesn't have to be about class. It doesn't have to be about your club versus my club except on the water. We're all in this together. And on the water, let's smack seven bells out of each other. And then as soon as we come off the water, let's go and have a coffee together or a drink together and a bite to eat together and talk about bloody hell, it was Bow's fault again. Anyway, point one then. Point one is that rowing and music are culturally minority interests, but that's not the reason why the equivalence is there and why the equivalence is important. Lots of things are minority interests. Wife swapping, I presume, is still a minority interest. We're reaching for something more than the sharing of a small niche in the cultural landscape when we're talking about the overlaps between music and rowing. So point two, and this is where we start getting into it. What? What have we been doing for the last 15 minutes, Aaron, if not getting into it? Well, okay, fair point. Point two. Those minority interests of rowing and music tend to provoke extreme engagement to the point of self-identification in those who do them. Let me repeat that. Those minority interests in music and rowing tend to provoke extreme engagement to the point of self-identification. I am a rower. I am a musician in those who do them. And here's why I think this is the case. And we're now starting to move. Yes, let's do this. Point three, I think that rowing and music are both disciplines or crafts or practices. And when it comes to matters of practice or discipline or craft, we continue in that practice or we continue in our progression in that discipline or we continue in that development of our craft when we find something of ourselves in the practice. I think that rowers aren't rowers because they're rowers. I think rowers are rowers because they find something of themselves in the sport. 
some satisfaction, some some fulfillment, some something, something that resonates and intrigues and engages, something that's already in us that is reflected in what we do on the water. And I think it's exactly the same for musicians. No one persists with an instrument unless they find something of themselves in it. And that usually means finding something in it that's a reflection of themselves, that resonates, that connects, can be anything can be anything in both in both practices. It can be the feel of the oar catching the water, it can be the phrasing of a line in a passage of music. It can be the way that being out in the boat makes us feel. It can be the way that playing our instrument makes us feel. It can be working with others and connecting to make something, to put a Henley run together, to put a band together, to, to make it to Henley, to record our first EP, to, to play in public can be the joy or the challenge of mastering a difficult skill, the mastery of which is never complete. It might be the cold mornings, it might be the flat water, it might be the still air, it might be the swinging through the groove at 38 strokes a minute or a really good 10K where you just stay at 18 and you're just banging it out and it's great. It could be the rehearsal rooms or annotating scores or, or working on your timing or performing with others. It, it, but whatever you do, rowing or music, you do it because it's you. Now, I know that that sounds woo. Woo, Aaron's gone airy-fairy, quick, and quick, quick, go to the north and, and, and slap him down because northerners shouldn't have these opinions. They, they should just eat their whippets and play with their stotties. I know it sounds woo, but if you row or if you're listening to this and you play, or if you row and you play, you know exactly what I mean. If you're a rower or a musician, or both, it's your thing, they're your thing. And you're passionate about it to the point of evangelism. Why? Because you found something of yourself reflected in the practice. And when we are aligned with ourselves, with who we truly are inside, with who we, who we remember wanting to be when we were five or six before, before all of the influences started crimping and cramping on the person that we were born to be. When we're aligned with ourselves, when we are truly doing what we love to do, we're not, it's not the job, it's not the mortgage, it's not the social media pressure or the X or the next or the shopping run or the whatever, that's when we feel most truly ourselves, alive and in the moment. And why wouldn't we want to feel that more? That's why we're evangelical about it. Why wouldn't we want to feel like that? So we go to the thing that makes us feel that, and in doing so, we come back to ourselves. Archie and Ethan, the small ergs, big dreams, geniuses, talked about rowing being an act of meditation, a cleanse from the demands of pretty serious degree work. And just life. Life is wearing. We all get hit by life. Everyone has a story. No one has a monopoly on the bad things that happen to people as we go through life. Because they all happen. They all do. We all get hit. And we all need to recharge the batteries. We all need to rediscover who we are. We all need to reconnect with it and get ready to go again. Who here, show of hands, even though I can't see you, who here listening, who here, who here listening to this has had an absolutely terrible day, terrible week, terrible month, terrible year, 
whatever and forgotten about it for the length of time that they're in the boat. Who here has had a rough time, and again, everyone, life hits everyone hard at some point, and realised afterwards that just going down to the boathouse every weekend was the lifeline that pulled them through. Who here has had a good row and come out the other side feeling refreshed, calm, totally centred and ready to go? Ask any musician and they'll tell you that playing leaves them feeling exactly the same. It has the same demands because like rowing, it's a discipline, as all practices are. But playing like rowing is an act of meditation because you can't do it well while thinking about other things. You can't think about anything else while you're doing it if you want to do it well. And in doing that, it puts you right back in the moment. Most of us live in a blur between what happened in the past and what we think is going to happen in the future and we miss the present. But rowing and music put a smack bang with ourselves in the present. And in doing so, it recenters us. It reconnects us to ourselves. And before anyone says, well, what do, you, what do you know? What do you know, Aaron? You can barely row. You freely admit that Lewin and Ben and Matt and Mark and Chapman and Justin carried you down the river at Agecroft. And you freely admit that Dan Armstrong shouts at you at Tyne, but it's really people like Damien and Trev and Stephen and everyone else who's doing the hard work. Well, yes, that is true. I'm very lucky to row with great people. I've played guitar since I was a teenager. I've played music since I was a teenager. I've sung since I could open my mouth and warble a tune. If you want to hear what I sound like, you can go back to the start of this and listen to me messing about on an acoustic guitar, which was just me picking a line in E minor and eventually resolving it through modulation to A. Did I know what I was doing? No, I just played. And then I played a very rough rolling Stevie Ray Vaughan blues pattern to show that, yes, I can do the other stuff that people, you know, like as well. If you want to hear what I sound like, I'll put a copy of my album up on, uh, now I've taken it down off Spotify. I know that James Knight has listened to it and recommended it. I'll go and watch the TV show, The Witcher. My music is on there somewhere. I play every day. I play every day, even if it's only for five minutes. And it always makes me more myself. And when I don't play, like rowing, or if I can't play, like rowing, or I put it off, or I put rowing off, I always regret it. I always regret it. And I'll tell you that now, freely and honestly, as I record this over the next to the kitchen table and it's freezing outside and I don't know who's going to ever listen to this, I feel exactly the same in a boat as I do when I'm playing music. That's it. I think there's lots of reasons for that and I'm going to get into them. Um, but to come back to the idea of it being a discipline and a practice and a craft, here's the thing. Rowing and music are disciplines. They're, they're things that we adopt as lifestyles. They're things that we find ourselves in. They become part of our self-image and part of our self-identity, self which is what happens when we're engaged with practices or disciplines or crafts that, we, that resonate with us. We might start playing the guitar, for example, because we want to be a guitar master, whatever that means. We want to be Segovia, or we want to be, we want to be Hendrix. And to get to being Hendrix, we'll actually find out that what we don't want, the reason why Hendrix was so powerful was because Hendrix was himself. And if we're lucky, we'll realize that the most important thing that we can do on a musical instrument is not copy someone else's licks, but find our own. Or we want to learn the violin because we want to play Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor at some point. Um, or we get into rowing because we see Redgrave winning 
his fifth and final goal in what we at Broken Oars called Redgrave's Last Stand. And we want to learn how to move a boat like that. But once we start, once we step on the path of music or rowing, we've started a never-ending, ever-enriching journey. Because there's always something to work on. Always. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how many Olympic medals you've got. Doesn't matter how many classical concertos you've performed at Carnegie. There's always something to learn, learn and work on. Even when we're experienced seasoned watermen or waterwomen or we're concert standard classical musicians. And I'm not. I'm not a concert standard classical musician. I'm not pretending to be. But we're always working on our timing, our placement, our control, our application, the way that we blend and harmonize with others, our understanding of ourselves and our craft, where we are on our journey. And I use those words deliberately because they can apply to either practice. Our control, our placement, our timing, our rhythm, our ratio, our feel, they apply to rowing and music equally. Which brings us to the mechanics of both disciplines, crafts and pursuits and practices. I think we're now at point four. Imagine you've just got in a boat for the first time. Hodge makes it look easy, right? We've seen the 2012 Coxless Fours final. Hodge, Hodge just looks like it's, a, it's just dead easy. You know, it looks easy. Helen Glover makes it look simple. Eric Murray, go and watch Eric sitting in the bow with Hamish. He makes it look like he's on the way to the golf course via a round of Strictly and there's some really cool stuff cooking on the barbie. He makes it look that simple. And it's your first time. They all make it look simple, but the oar feels weird in your hands. The boat is moving all the time. It won't stay still. You haven't learned yet to control your core and sit it. It just feels odd. So you take what you think is a stroke, but you miss the water or you dredge the bottom. And now someone in a tin fish is shouting at you to tap down because you can't, because the oars in your lap, there's literally nowhere to tap down to. You would have to amputate both legs to tap down. And now they're telling you to square early. They're telling you to square early. You can hear them, but you can't square early because the boat's down on your side and your oar is on the water and you're having to drag it back on the recovery to try and take the next stroke. How can you possibly square when your oar is, is on the water? Oh, and now you've just caught your outside thumb on the sax board and it's bleeding. And you can't get comfortable because there's a huge lump of carbon fiber in the way no matter what you try and do. The boat's moving around all over the place. The seat is eating your bum and this isn't as easy as Hodge and Helen and Eric made it look. This is bloody hard. Bloody's not a swear word. It's not a swear word. Now, Imagine you're having your first guitar lesson, or violin lesson, or piano lesson. You've always wanted to play. You've bought yourself one. But it feels really odd on your lap. You can't get it comfortable. If you put it here, then the, the body is slipping off to the right-hand side. But if you put it further over, then it feels neck-heavy, and it's dipping down to the left-hand side. You can't get it comfortable. And your teacher's showing you like a basic cowboy chord up at the, the, the business end, and you're copying his hands, but you can't see the strings. So you have to kind of crane over and lean over. And you're trying to put your fingers where he looks like he's got his, but the spaces between the strings is really small and your fingers feel too big and your wrist is in a funny position. And now your shoulder on your left is, is hurting. Oh, oh, right, great. You've finally got your fingers on the, what you think are the right strings and you think you've got the same chord. And he tells you to strum. But when you strum, it makes a sound like a bag of spanners falling down tin steps. You have to look to see where the strings are to strum with your right hand, 
But when you do so, you're looking at your right hand and your focus is not on your left hand anymore and that, that's slipped so you're not actually playing the chord and it's another sound like a bag of spanners falling down tin steps and now your fingertips are hurting. It's, it's really tough on the fingertips when you start. And now they're showing you another chord. Oh, okay, okay, so you do the other chord and, and that, that really hurts the fingertips because it's like an A with three fingers in the first position. Oh, but now they want you to go back to the first chord but you can't remember the shape and you have to start, at, and this, this isn't as easy as Segovia and Jimmy and Eddie made it look. First-time rowers and first-time musicians feel exactly the same things. First-time rowers and first-time musicians are dealing with new equipment, which feels odd until you get used to it. Dealing with new movements, new demands on, on our brains and our bodies, new processes, new sequences of action and reaction, and the body and brain are going to feel it. You think music is easy compared to rowing 21K at rate 18? Try standing in the correct posture with a violin and see how long you last before everything starts to ache. And that's before you start trying to make music on it, which starts with pizzicato on the left hand, and that's even before you start bringing the violin bow in, which is a whole different kettle of badgers. Now, remember the first time you sat in a boat? Think back to the first time that you sat in a boat, or even better, if you're a naturalized bowsider or stroke sider, go and sit on the other side and try and do it. Feels odd, doesn't it? Both rowers and musicians are learning new skills in the service of an overarching skill, none of which involve natural movements and all of which take a huge amount of work and concentration to become naturalized movements. Ones where you take the catch without thinking or unless you want to think about your catch and drawing to the right height automatically unless you want to think about where you're drawing to because you want to work on that aspect of technique or the music says play an E diminished with the root and the bass in the seventh position and your hand goes there without you asking it to we're going to get to how and why in a moment but you all know the model of learning that I'm talking about in both cases we have unconscious incompetence, which is we, we don't know how much we don't know. We have conscious incompetence, where we, we know how much we don't know. We have conscious competence, where we can do something, but we have to think about it. And then we have unconscious competence, where we can do something mechanically without having to think about it. And we can then apply that to a wider context because we've mastered basic fundamental skills. We've all done this when we've learned to drive. And it's the same when we row we learn to row or when we learn to play an instrument. We start having grown up watching our parents drive, say, and thinking, well, that looks easy. You just kind of, you move the, 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 the wheelie thing to turn and you, 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 you push with that foot and this happens here. And then we get in a cockpit for the first time and all we can see are knobs and dials and pedals in the inside of the car. And, you know, even just moving away from the curb is a, is a, is a major feat of 20 or 30 things that need to happen before we can move away from the curb. And eventually we might become consciously competent. We can, we can change gear, but we might occasionally glance down to check that we've changed to the right one. Or we might be, need to be reminded that we have to check our mirrors before we move away in a particular sequence and also check our blind spot. Or then when we are driving, we have to check our mirrors every 15 seconds. More if we're in town, more if there's a cycle lane around us. But we're now looking beyond the bonnet to the road ahead and we're learning to process all of that emotion. And then we're just driving. The driving is automatic, but what we're doing is we're taking in all of the data around us and behind us and each, each side of us um, without thinking about what we're doing in the cockpit to drive as well and as safely as we possibly can. 
It's exactly the same with rowing. It's exactly the same with learning to play an instrument. We start in our seat. Our vision and our understanding is limited to that. Is limited to that. Eventually, over time, we can see and feel the whole boat and the river and what's happening on it and how the boat feels and what we're all doing individually and collectively. And we're feeling and listening and responding to what everyone else is doing to make the boat move better. And it's exactly the same as playing an instrument. We start by having to look at our fingertips to make chord shapes and end up not by looking at our fingers, but by listening and responding to what others around us are doing so that we can all make the music sound better. Rowing fundamentally requires the rower to make a complex series of movements to be repeated precisely and in perfect time with others for rowing to occur. Music requires the musician to make a complex series of movements to be repeated precisely and in perfect time and in unison with others for music to occur. It's a fundamental equivalence. To be able to play a harmonically simple three chord song on the guitar takes hours and hours and hours of work, drilling our fingers and our brains to repeat complex series of movements over and over again, opening up new neural pathways and muscular responses while taking conceptual ideas like timing and rhythm and tempo and making them a felt thing. To putting our outing together takes hours and hours of work, drilling our bodies and our brains to repeat a complex series of movements over and over again, opening up new neural pathways and muscular responses while taking conceptual ideas like timing and rhythm and tempo and making them a felt thing. To get to the point where we can play that three chord song without thinking about it or put together a good outing without thinking about it and make it sound like music or feel like rowing, not just all of the right notes in all of the right places or get to the point where the, the outing has more good bits in it than bad can take months or years. To get to the point where we can play the Mendelssohn with an orchestra in front of people or row at Henley or an Olympic final or even our local long distance head takes years of work. To do it at the elite level, the Olympic level, the, the, the Henley level, takes decade of decade and decades of ongoing endless work on the mechanics. And that's why I said at the start that although rowing and music can put us in a state of grace, we get there through the work on the mechanics. And that's why I've drawn attention to the fundamental equivalences of the learning trajectory. The mechanics are learning what bits on the what the bits on the instrument are called, what they do what the bits on the boat are called, what they do. The boat is an instrument too, don't think it isn't. And setting it up and playing it and maintaining it are vital parts of the practice of rowing in the same way that a vital part of the practice of being a musician is looking after your instrument, cleaning it, polishing it, restringing it, checking that the neck relief is right, making sure that the bridge is intonating correctly. It's exactly the same as checking the spans or checking the heights on the gate or making sure that the, 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 the pitches are all correct. The mechanics are the sore hands that come from rowing the blisters or the sore fingertips learning the basic chord shapes or learning the names of the notes or learning what a finish is and what a catch is. The mechanics are endless scales and arpeggios and intonation work making each one sound not like an exercise but like music. The mechanics are slap catchers and Russian catchers and cutting the cake and half slide up twos and roll ups to the point where you're not doing exercises, you're actually feeling what that is like in rowing terms. 
the mechanics are learning to feel with your fingertips whether you're flat or sharp on the string and adjust imperceptibly. The mechanics are learning to feel what the water is doing on the blade just by your fingertips on the oar. And if you think, oh, come on Jacko, come on lad, come on lad, come and have a lie down. You're reaching. We're just big and we're hearty and we pull on the oar and we talk about lactate thresholds and musicians just fiddle around with resins and talk about crotchets and stuff. Yeah, you think musicians don't work with rhythm, tempo, ratio and timing every single day. There's an idea that music is about knowing where one is or where the beat is. Well, even on a click track, any good musician can play on the beat, behind the beat, ahead of the beat. They can push and pull the feel around by being still perfectly in time. They can still be bang on with the click while doing all of those things, while they're also responding to what everyone else in the room is, is playing. Just like we do in a boat. Just like we do in a boat, a little bit of lateral pressure because we can feel the boat's doing this, so we put a bit of lateral pressure on to bring the trim back, or we can we can tell that someone is 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 drawing down, so we might we might change our draw slightly to compensate and help them out. And rhythm and ratio. One in the water, two on the slide. What is that? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's waltz time. It's what your grandma and granddad used to dance around when you were young enough to stand on their shoes and they taught you the waltz and the tango and the foxtrot and the foxtrot. The foxtrot? The foxtrot. They're the same things. We speak the same language. Moving a boat down a river is exactly the same as putting a band together and getting it to the point where you can play in front of people. There is a wonderful, wonderful video by the classical violinists on YouTube two-set violin. I don't know if you've heard of them, but there's an episode, and I've put a link to it in the blurb, where they do masterclasses with students. And then Brett does a masterclass with Maxim Vengerov. Now, if you don't know who Maxim Vengerov is, he's the musical equivalent of Matt Pinsent or Eric Murray or Drew Chin. He's an absolute beast of a violinist. He's a complete master of his instrument. Brett decides to play Yassé's Sonata Number no. 3 which is fiendishly difficult, but it's one of the only pieces of modernist music that has ever made sense to me. Um, because you can hear the theme, you can hear the development, you can hear the harmony, but it's still fiendishly difficult. It's fiendishly difficult. It's complex. The harmonies are weird. It's not, it's not classical or neoclassical. It, it's not, it doesn't follow logic, but it has an internal logic. And the fingering on it is a mama jammer. It is one, it's just, difficult. It's also, and fair play to Brett, because this is a baller move, it's one of Vengerov's encore set pieces, and he performs it like an erupting volcano. When Vengerov performs this sonata, I'll put a link to it as well, it is an absolute tour de force of violin playing and what is possible with the human finger, with human fingers. It's unbelievable. So fair play to uh, Brett, because Brett plays it for him. And then they start going through it bar by bar. Maxine breaks it down bar by bar from the opening bar. And it's not just the music and what's happening in the score or Brett's interpretation, but he goes through everything. He goes through the hand position. He goes through the bow angle, what the elbow is doing in the bow hand, what the posture is doing, um, what each phrase is doing, how each phrase r relates to the wider harmonic contour 
at one point, he stops Brett and he goes to work on Brett's vibrato. Now, if you're not a musician, vibrato is what really bad singers and violinists use to hide the fact that they can't hit the note properly. It's what Billy Connolly used to do when he did imitations of club singers. On a But vibrato is also what really good singers and musicians use to add colour and emotion to playing. Brett is a, is a trained classical violinist. He's really, really good. You don't get to play for symphony orchestras unless you can play. But then... Maxim Vengerov is probably the finest virtuoso of his generation. And Maxim starts asking him in a particular passage, and I'll put a I'll put the link up to it. I think it's 31 minutes, 26 seconds is when the, the masterclass starts, but I'll put another link up for this. He starts asking him to use to use his vibrato, not using the wrist or the whole hand, which is, you know, um, if you kind of put your hand up and pretend you're a violinist and you kind of you waggle from the wrist, that is a form of vibrato. What he asks Brett to do is start using the pharyngeal joints of the fingers, the knuckles, individually. Because the passages he's playing, if I remember correctly, are unison double stops. So it's unison lines and double stops. And Maxim wants Brett to apply specific vibrato to each group of four notes under each finger. So each finger is applying specifically different vibrato to each double stop and then he wants Brett to blend each set of differing vibratos into the whole to make the musical phrase and statement sing. Now this is this is advanced level stuff. Stand up with a ruler, pretend to be a violinist, shake your wrist, you now have vibrato. Now you when you vibrato notes you're moving them in and out of tune. You're moving above and below the original pitch. Think of a of a blues bend on the guitar, like a I don't know a, a Dave Gilmore in Comfortably Numb or Another Brick in the Wall when he does those those amazing vocal sounding bends. You're raising and lowering the pitch from its original tone to create a vocal and musical effect. But let's be mathematical about this. Music is all frequency. So when you do apply vibrato to two or more notes, the vibrato going up and down in each note is going in and out of phase and in and out of tune with the other notes which are also vibratoing and going in and out of phase and in and out of tune with the other notes. Now for a moment imagine the level of control needed to apply four individual vibratos to four individual notes, one in each finger, all being played at the same time where you have to control the individual movements of your knuckles to produce an in-tune musical statement. That's like doing quadratic equations while drowning. It's hard. It's not just one group of notes. It's a fairly rapid phrase that he's working through. You're moving four different notes in and out of tune individually to make the, the, the whole sound in tune. This is genius level mechanical application. And what Maxim is doing with Brett is what a really good coach does with a rower. People think that rowing is bash and crash but it's actually a mix of powerlifting and ballet. The movements needed in the body are very, very subtle. And the technical language we, move, we use is always to get us back to the feel of the boat moving well. And the technical language that we use is to get back to the feel, not just of the boat, 
but the way we feel it in our bodies. And it's exactly the same with music. The technical language that Wengeroff is using with Brett is to get him into a space where he is feeling what Wengeroff is trying to tell him about what the music is actually doing. And that understanding comes from time and work on the mechanics. In process and learning terms, they're the same thing, occupying the same learning arcs and the same emotional and physical spaces in our body. Before you can play a symphony, you have to sit and learn new mechanics of movement and refine them before you even come close to playing anything that sounds and feels like music. With rowing, you have to learn new difficult mechanics of movement and refine them before you even begin to get what rowing feels like. And once you're on that path, once you're in that craft, once you're in that practice, once you're in that discipline, those mechanics are ones that you will work on for the rest of your life in that practice, in that craft, in that discipline. Classical musicians don't just show up and bang out a symphony. They still they do exercises every day, scales and arpeggios and chord work and timing and rhythm and control, just like rowers do. The mileage that we do, our mileage is our practice. Our mileage is our rehearsal. The better you get, the more you know there is to work on, the finer the margins that you're working on, but you're still working on your practice, on your craft, on your discipline, that's all. And here's the thing, point five, I think. I may have lost count, I don't think I have. Rowing and music require us to work in harmony and concert with other people for it to happen. Oh, come on, AJ, that is, that is, you, you okay, we can take the mechanic stuff, you know, it would be better if Loon was here because he'd, he'd talk about Thor Nielsen and efficiency and, and, and muscular neural pathways. But you're reaching now. Rowing has people in it and music has people in it, so therefore they're the same. Well, that's hardly a place to rest your case, Your Honour, is it? Well, you might think that, but think about this. Have you ever been in an eight or a quad or a four or a pair where everything just clicks? where it feels effortless, where it's easy, where you feel like you and the boat are flying. Everyone is moving together. Everyone is swinging together. Everyone is in the pocket. Everyone is in the groove. Doesn't matter if it's rate 18 in a paddle or pushing down from 46 to 38 with 1700 to go and everything is clicking. Everything is moving together. Everyone is in sync. The timing and the rhythm and the ratio, it's just, it's just, it's just a groove, man. Well, playing in a really good band with really good musicians who you've played with for a long time and who've played with you for a long time feels exactly the same. Everything clicks, it's easy, it elevates. The groove is river deep, mountain high, but you've got all the time in the world. You've got loads of time. You know instinctively when to push and when to lay black and when to lay back because everyone around you, you know what they're doing. They know you and you know them. You know what your bass player is going to do. You know what the keyboard player is doing. You, you, you just see the whole picture because you've blended over hours and hours and hours of playing together. I have a saying at Tyne United, eights take time to blend or boats take time to blend because they do. I say it now when it's a good outing and I say it when it's a bad outing because the new sympathetic Jackson is not effing hell, this better be better now. It's not the Jackson of Agecroft, but it's true. I rode with Ben and Chapman and Mark and Lewin and Matt and Justin for years at Agecroft. Years and years and years. I knew what Ben was going to do before he did it. I knew whether he'd had a good day at work or not just by looking at his shoulders. I knew all of their idiosyncrasies and all of their quirks. All rowers have them. 
We all have them. That's what the magic of coaching. Coaching is not just the, the eight best erg scores or the four best erg scores and stick them together in a boat. Coaching is magic as well as science. It's about blending individual idiosyncrasies together. It's about crew chemistry. You hear musicians talk about the chemistry in a band being right. It's exactly the same in a crew. I knew their rhythms and quirks and they knew mine and we blended them over years. Row with someone once. This weekend, go out with them. Someone you've never rowed with, it might be okay. Row with them or the same crew a hundred times and you'll not just start finding your level, but you'll start elevating it because you'll be starting to blend. You'll have rehearsed, you'll have found your groove, you'll have found your pocket, you'll have started to mesh all of your mechanical aspects into one collective. And if you're lucky, you get those magical outlings where we, as rowers, hit a state of grace, where you hit the rhythm and your groove and you feel like you could row forever. I rowed with those guys at Agecroft for five years. It was a band. It was a band in the same way that a band is a band. It's a band of brothers, of friends, of colleagues, of crewmates, of whatever you like, but it was a band. It had the same dynamics, had the same sense of humor, had the same reliance on fart jokes for humor. And we made music on the water. Some of it was pretty flipping ugly music. Some of it was bad death metal where everyone dies and Satan is Lord. But some of it was positively symphonic. Rutherford Head, described by Chapman, my captain. Oh, Chapman, my Chapman. A man not given to overstatement, described as perfect liquid rowing for, it was just glorious. Setting the course record for the, the reach from Manchester back to Salford beating Agecroft's Henley winners twice over two 4K legs and rake, and rake cap pieces. Pieces so good that Lewin went, bloody hell, that were a bit special. Can we do that again? Music is the same. Decent musicians, like decent rowers, will make a sound that sounds like music the first time someone counts off four and everyone starts. But decent musicians who rehearse and play together for years and who work on refining their practice individually and collectively, well, that's when you get the moments when everything slows down, when time stands still and you get to walk between the notes. That's when you stop playing patterns and start playing music. Just like when it all clicks in the boat and you all stop rowing and you just start moving the boat like it wants to be moved. The state of grace in each discipline, in each practice, in each craft is reached by mechanical work. Doing the miles, whether it's in a boat or on an instrument, is vital. Why? Well, here's, here's the thing. There's, there's a myth. There's a myth of genius, and it runs in sports and the arts, that people are talented. I don't actually believe that there's such a thing as talent, but there you go. We have the myth of, I don't know, the ball-playing genius in football, the Paul Gascoins, the Ronaldinho's, the Messi's, the Mbappe's, the, the, the shot-maker in tennis who on his day is unplayable, or, or the genius musician who just turns up and blows everyone away. Well, none of those geniuses were born able to play an inside-out forehand or to, to waltz past three opponents with, with amazing feet and put the ball in the back of the net or run off a sequence of perfect 128th notes. The funny thing when people talk about the Ronaldinho's and the Gascoigne's and the, if you want to go back further, the Shackleton's and all of that sort of stuff, or, you know, the, 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 the Wengeroffs or the Menuhins or, the, or the, the Hendrixes, they had their instruments with them at all times. Ronaldinho always had a ball at his feet. 
Hendrix cooked breakfast and went to the toilet wearing his Fender Stratocaster. He couldn't stop playing. What we culturally positioned as eruptions of artistic talent and, and somehow otherworldly genius were actually practice becoming performance. We don't see the hours the concert pianist spends in the practice room or working through interpretations with the orchestra. Every stroke in an Olympic rowing final, every single stroke, took literally days of work. Days! The idea that art and sporting excellence just come forth is nonsense. It might occasionally. If you're lucky and you're engaged with your craft, you'll, you'll occasionally get a little gift where it just, as we said before, it feels effortless. It just comes out. But you have to do the miles. This is, this is a one where I wish Lewin was here, actually. I don't think we train in rowing to get fitter. Okay, when was the last time, as you listen to this, that your 2K score improved by 30 seconds in a lump? It, it, it hasn't, right? It hasn't for a long time. It might improve by one or two or three or four seconds. Once you reach a certain point, it might improve by one or two or three or four seconds. Because the deeper into the practice and the craft we get, the harder we have to work to make gains, to make what are called gains now, or to make improvements. I think in rowing we don't train to get fitter. I think we train every day so that every day we're not training to increase our ceiling, we're training to raise our base level of performance so at any given day we can perform at a solid 7 out of 10 every time. And if we can do that, yes, we might get the odd five or six where it's a bad outing or a bad race, but we'll also get the odd eight, nine, and ten where it's where it's as close to perfection as, as we can get in our lifetimes. We do the mechanics and the miles to raise our average levels of performance on any given day. And musicians do the same. Classical pianists aren't hitting perfect tens at every time they walk out on the concert stage. They're nailing sevens. And if everything's right and it's a good night, you'll get an eight or a nine or a 10, but they'll have bad nights where it's a five or a six. Ask any rower what their 2K score is and they'll tell you that it's their PB. When the reality is it's the mean average between their PB and their season's best. That's their working baseline average. Because rowers are just as guilty of self-deception as everyone else, but that's the baseline average. What, what your PB is and what your, what your season's best is this year the one in the middle, that's what you can do on any given day. That's what working the mechanics does for us. It, it elevates our ceiling, but in doing so, it also raises our base level of performance, which gives us a better chance of reaching those states of grace because we're doing the work. Now, I'm going to sidebar here into rock climbing, but it isn't a sidebar. It's an example of how we feel and process physical mechanical processes because they relate to our emotional and spiritual processes. And I said this would get a bit woo, and I said it would get to the point where we talk about how rowing and music both makes us feel, and they're really similar. And talking about rock climbing is going to provide an insight into mechanics and states of grace. Johnny Dawes. If you haven't heard of him before now, go and Google Johnny Dawes. He's probably the finest rock climber of the 1980s generation. He's certainly the most original and he's also coincidentally madder than a box of frogs. Johnny was the first climber to put up a 9A line in Britain when he sent the iconic Indian face on the Welsh slate of Cloggy. Now I apologise to Lewin in advance but I believe that the, the actual full title is Clogwinder Ardu. That's an Englishman trying to speak Welsh. It, it's, it's like a bear trying to juggle chainsaws, I know. 
The Indian face was an extremely bold line with little protection. The crooks move. The crooks move is the hardest move on any given climb, and that is what gives it its grading, in this case 9A. The crooks move was a simple binary. You either make the crooks and you live, or you fall and you die, because it was so far up with so little protection that a fall from that height would invariably be fatal. Many had tried the line, none had made it past the crooks. Johnny did. Okay, Google Johnny Dawes Indian face, or actually just go and Google Johnny Dawes on and climbs like uh, the quarryman. Okay, it's unbelievable to watch. Unbelievable. The Indian face in the last 30 years now, 35 years, has not been repeated apart from a handful of times in the 30 years since Johnny first established it as a viable line. And it's never been done as an on-site ground-up climb, which means that you, you stand at the bottom, you start climbing and you make it to the top. You don't do any abseiling down, you don't practice any of the moves, you don't do any of that stuff. Okay, that, that's really important in the world of climbing, climbing ethics, being able to do something on-site. The fact that it hasn't been repeated and never as an on-site ground up indicates why his achievement reached out beyond the narrow world of climbing to make headlines in the British broadsheets at the time. It was the climbing equivalent of man landing on the moon. But here's the thing. Johnny's greatest legacy is the fact that his approach to climbing was so creative and so idiosyncratic and so had never ever been seen or done before that it's only recently that it started to filter through to the mainstream. When you watch people like Chris Sharma or Adam Ondra climb now with the big dynamic moves and the, and the, no one did that before. Johnny pioneered dynamic moves rather than static ones. Dinos, linking multiple sequences together using only movement to propel himself up sheer rock like salmon up a waterfall. Back then, climbers did what was called static moves. If you couldn't reach it and pull up to it, or you didn't have the strength to hang on to it, then you couldn't do the, the move. Whereas Johnny went, well, if I, if I put my feet here and I move like that, and I dance up the rock like this, I'll get to here. It was groundbreaking. Climbers get to choose their lines up, up a rock face. If they are the first to ascend them, they get to name them. And in choosing their lines and in choosing how they climb them, climbers reveal their own character in the same way that we re-reveal our characters in rowing boats and on musical instruments. So if you look at someone called Ron Fawcett, and I know he sounds like a character from the Beano, but he, he does exist. He's a wonderful, wonderful climber himself. Some of his pieces are unbelievably good. There's a sense of traditional climbing being pushed to its absolute zenith. Ron had endless stamina, superb athleticism. If you look at Johnny's lines, lines like Indian Face, Quarryman's Groove, Gaia, go and look at Gaia, which has spat some amazing climbers off because it's such a subtle climb. The Braille Trail, Fairy Steps, Sad Among Friends, I mean, there are hundreds. Johnny's lines have an imaginative boldness, a technical finesse, a cold, hard courage that's as personally distinctive as a fingerprint. Now, how does this get into emotion and spirituality and mechanics and how they link together? Well, I once had a coaching session with Johnny Dawes when I was in Sheffield and I was climbing and I never got above being able to climb 7A and I might occasionally, if I worked a line, get up to 7C in a, in a bouldering thing. Um, something like not to be taken away up at, up at Stanage or, or something, you know, um, 
careless talk was one I always wanted to nail, but it's it's just brutal. Um, four hours in Johnny's company taught me one simple fact. If I climbed all day, every day for the rest of my life, I still wouldn't be as good a climber as Johnny Dawes. That's okay. Neither will 99% of the rock monkeys out there. Rowing has taught me a simple fact that even if I discovered rowing when I was 16 rather than when I was 26, I probably wouldn't have won an Olympic medal. I might have made the weekend at Henley. I was never going to be another Redgrave is my point, but that's okay because most rowers in this country are not another Redgrave or another Glover or another Hodge or, or another Murray or another Bond. Most rowers are just rowers like Lewin and me and you who are listening to this, who just like to get out on the water because we like rowing. What made Johnny special was what he did at that time in that moment in the sport. A good analogy, and we're coming back to music again, is that rock guitarists now can learn to play like Eddie Van Halen. It's pretty simple. You just copy his licks. You can type in YouTube, learn to play like Eddie Van Halen, and someone will teach you how to play Eruption or uh, Running with the Devil or um, Jamie's Crying or You Really Got Me or any or Panama or any of that stuff but they'll never actually be Eddie Van Halen. They'll never be that kid with that stripy guitar and that incarnation of that band coming out of Pasadena with that sound at exactly that point in the time and the culture. That moment is gone. Even Eddie isn't really Eddie anymore, largely because he's now dead, but because he turned Van Halen into a bad version of Bon Jovi when we already had Bon Jovi. But that's the reality of cultural points on the curve and it's the same in music and it's the same in rowing and it's the same in rock climbing. We're all responding and reacting to the impression the previous generation made in any field. Johnny himself was reacting to what had gone before him when he put up lines that even today are cutting edge and leave some of the best climbers in the world scratching their heads wondering how to get up to it. But tr working alongside Johnny, alongside the depressing thought that I'd never be Johnny Dawes, I also learned a few other things that I think are will feed into what we're talking about. For one thing, it's quite possible that Johnny is synesthetic. And that means that he feels things as felt emotions. He got, he hears color, he hears physical things. And I know that sounds weird, but it does exist. He spent a large portion of the session trying to teach me, trying to get me to hear the different sounds that different holes make. So. For him, large thuggy jokes where you can get you can get your hand right over and use your thumb and use that use that monkey linkage between hand, shoulder, and body. For him, those big thug thuggy jokes made dull donk donk sounds, while pinchy little crimps where you're literally you're using your fingertips and your thumb to to lock onto things the the size of a pinhead make little squeaky neep 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 sounds. And his theory was that if you could hear the sequence of sounds on a uh, hear the sequence of sounds holds on a given line make that would allow us to negotiate them in the same way that music musicians internalize complex sequences of notes as a series of tensions and releases as much of tonal values the general sense that you should be able to see and feel the moves before you make them that was his thing don't just climb it see it feel it and hear it before you even touch the rock and then you just, like a musician, gliding through a piece of music, you just follow the notes to its conclusion. If you don't feel it, don't move. Wait until you, you 
you feel the next move as clearly and tangibly to you in your body and your brain and your heart and your soul as your own heartbeat and then move this works in rock climbing i was a better climber after johnny this works in music it works in rowing peter holmes amazing coach used to say be thinking rowers be constantly evaluating responding to what you're doing and what's happening around you a little lateral pressure there using your peripheral vision to constantly monitor the trim of the shell in relation to the water drawing a little further up or down to reset it either mid-stroke or by holding the finish in or or leaving the finish slightly or adjusting the hands in the recovery it's a 15 foot carbon fiber balance beam use it to balance at its very best rowing is a field sport we use technical language to get us back to the feel of moving a boat well. The point is not the technical language. The technical language means nothing. The feel is all. And when it's moving well, we know it as purely and simply as we know when we're in love. It's a whole body feeling. And it's exactly the same with music. And yes, there's a lot of slogging mileage where it just feels like a total grind all of the time. But we do our mechanics so when we play our messiah, we can put the mechanics down and just play. Point six, and it's important that this comes in here as we get into the realms of the spirit and the emotional, because to get to a state of grace, there's a fundamental link here between the necessity of replication in music and the necessity of replication in sport to achieve this. From 2K score to stroke profile, successful rowing depends upon consistency. Uniformity produces predictable results. To move a boat well, level, quickly, requires strokes that are identical in every aspect height, length, pressure, rate. This, as much as physical fitness, is why crews train so intensely. It's only when one of these factors is under the conscious control of the oarsman as an individual and the crew as a collective that they can, if need be, be varied. In any discipline, including music, when you can reproduce a particular result at will, not only does it generate confidence, which is central to the success of the endeavor, but it allows the freedom, it allows you the freedom to start experimenting with it. Think of the saxophonist John Coltrane and you'll think of astounding bursts of speed and agility cramming blurs of notes into bars but his practice consistently focused on playing long evenly toned notes. His dazzling improvisation sprang from his command of duration, timbre, sequencing, um, tempo, rhythm, ratio, Similarly with Johnny, the creativity of his approach to climbing and thus his lines could only have happened because he'd mastered the basics of the art, of the practice, of the discipline, of the craft to a high level. It's the same with music. This is a fundamental part of the other thing that I learned during my session with Johnny Dawes, that movement can generate grip and friction where there might not appear to be any. Now this might appear to be self evident, but the vicious internecine war that is the ongoing debate about climbing ethics makes rowing's endless debates about technique appear like an afternoon tea party. There is still a body in climbing who feel that if the moves can't be done static, without swinging or jumping for the next hold dynamically, they shouldn't be done at all. Johnny's idea, now commonplace in the dynamism of bouldering and sport climbing, is that a fast sequence of moves on partial holds executed well will get you up the wall where simply hanging on and pulling hard won't cut it. As a, as a rower and as a musician, I found to a point being familiar with a piece or a process does not remove the spontaneity from playing it. 
the confidence that comes from simply knowing that you have it under your fingers or in your hands or in your body brings a sense of ease and a larger awareness beyond a simple desire to get the notes in the right places or to get the aura in and out at the right time. From repetition comes fluency. A lot of work that the rower does or the musician does is essentially mindless. By that, I don't mean there's no goal in sight, but that the goal is rendition and the mean to achieve it is mechanical repetition. When practicing a difficult piece or passage or working on a particular aspect of technique to make it better or to even learn it in the first place, being mindlessly mechanical while paying attention to good form and good execution is not a bad thing. It's a different sort of practice to say, in a musical sense, maybe balancing the voices within a chord or paying attention to the weight and phrasing given to the contours of a, of a melody line in order to determine the tonal colour, the weight and the dynamics of each note to attain the greatest sum of all of its parts and interpretation. Or in a rowing sense, in being able to, getting used to performing at rate 28 or rate 32 or rate 36 when you've been paddling down at rate 18 forever. It takes practice, but with the practice comes the confident. Going fast in a rowing boat is not about necessarily about being brutally fast and physical, it's about being able to be to execute the same sequence of movements at higher speeds, but equally precisely. Where pure unconscious muscle memory is required in both, disengaging the mind and allowing the body to take over can help. List once told his students to read a book while practicing to force this idea of dissociation. Pete Holmes said, be a thinking rower, but there are times when he also said, you just have to grind it out. And that doesn't mean letting the standards fall or letting things fall off off from the standard that you've set. Grinding it out means actually working mentally and physically really, really hard on maintaining a high level. And by doing that, the repetition creates fluency. List's feeling was that only when you can play a given passage at tempo without anxiety about what notes comes next can you begin to pay attention to the interpretation. And it's the same with rowing. If you're anxious about rowing at rate 28 in a head race because you've never done it, you'll be so busy concentrating on what comes next and what's happening, it will feel so uncomfortable that it won't be fluent. But if before your head race, for example, you've done lots of pieces at rate 28 and you have got used to the sequence being essentially the same but faster, then you won't have any anxiety about it and you'll go to the start line and you'll just perform. Even in pieces where, musical pieces, where tonal colours are the essential point, refinement can only come when the hands can play it with the, without mental and muscular interference on the part of the musician. And it's exactly the same with the rower. It's only when you don't have to think about your technique when it's so grooved and it's so good and you've made it so good by the the repetitive nature of, of very engaged core work on skills and mechanics that you can start to step up. You shouldn't be worrying about what your finish is doing at rate 38. And if you are worrying about it, it should be because you want to change it in response to external circumstances to make the boat go faster. You shouldn't actually be wondering what it should look and feel like at rate 38. You should have sorted that out down at rate 18 and then worked the sequence up so you can execute it at tempo. Now I'm no list, we know that. I'm not even Brahms and list as I, as I record this. I'm no Redgrave, I'm no Hodge, I'm no Glover. But I found that once worrying about what ne what's next is taken out of the equation, rowing and music come to life. 
Once upon a time, I learned Isaac Albanez's Asturias. Now, it was an act of rampant masochism to even attempt it, of course, given that it's considered a difficult piece in the classical repertoire, and that I come at the guitar from the popular idiom of someone who knows one and a half chords. I have no grounding in classical technique, nor in classical music as it's formally taught. I can't even read music. I literally practice it a bar at a time, adopting the formal positions and techniques of classical music as I did so. I also essentially practiced it brainlessly. Putting the television on, I play only stopping to occasionally check the notes and the positions of my right and left hand fingertips. I noticed as I learned this piece that going over and over a difficult passage steadily for 15 or 20 minutes did not necessarily guarantee immediate improvement. However, afterwards I found that sleeping on it, my ability to play whatever section I'd been working on would have magically and significantly improved overnight. How does a delicate piece of classical music equate to smacking a boat down a river here, I hear you ask. Well, I suggest the technique in both cases works best or is best developed when the involuntary part of the mind takes over completely. Discussions of right-hand attack in the triplet section can be seen as similar to discussions of the shape of the catch or the float. Questions of interpretation that mean nothing unless you actually do your miles and you work through it. For the record, it took me a year to learn Asturias to the point where I could play it cleanly and clearly on a steel string guitar alongside John Williams' machine gun, like an attack version of it. Like rowing, music is a perishable skill, however. Having failed to practice it relentlessly since, it's many years on, and I can probably get as far as the first triplet section before collapsing in a heap of slurred notes and erratic tempi. You either lose it or use it. And that's the other thing about music and rowing. They are perishable, perishable skills. Now, the fact that I've linked these two things together might just be my interpretation alone, of course. I might be the only rower who plays music who thinks, actually, I think these things are fundamentally the same in terms of being disciplines and crafts and practices. But the point is, I do think like this. So there's probably other rowers out there who think like this. I have a naturalized instinct, or I had a naturalized instinct, that wouldn't really let me enjoy the moment. I needed to know why I was enjoying it. As a habit, over-analysis is really annoying when it isn't really detrimental to your quality of life. But there were many reasons why I did it, and there were many reasons why I still do it occasionally. And one of those is music and other imaginative pursuits, like sport, are forms of self-expression. Yeah, is this 0.7? Possibly. Um, probably. I don't buy the idea as a Freudian interpretation that these things allow people to play out desires and frustrations that are otherwise constrained by their everyday lives. If only because the self-flagellating, masochistic element of rowing's relentless grind can be read too easily in the context of a Roman Catholic person raised in a country where Puritanism's long shadow is yet to fully recede. We have this thing in Britain that being able to enjoy oneself has to be earned rather than starting from the position that enjoying ourselves is the starting position and everything else comes after that. However, there are comparable elements between the driven competitive sportsman and the idea of the misfit artistic genius. The basic paradigm is this. The artist emerges as a result of early social exclusion, pushing them into the world of their own imagining. Seeking to make the world of their imagining real produces the art that produces society's admiration, something that the artist has always craved but ultimately finds unfulfilling. Like most basic paradigms, it's deeply, deeply flawed. I, for one, refuse to accept that my personality fits this model at all, if only because of the following reasons. 
Number one, romantic theories of art cultivate this idea of creative exceptionalism and isolation. Number two, those romantic theories of art are complete and utter rubbish. Number three, the misunderstood artist who cannot explain themselves to society is one thing, but when it becomes passed as an intrinsic part of the ability to create art of any value, it presupposes that all true artists are misunderstood social misfits. Number four, from this trope holding a cultural currency, it is a short step to the formulation, I'm a rude, difficult, antisocial, arrogant git, therefore I must be a genius, which isn't true. There are lots of rude, difficult, antisocial, arrogant gits around who don't produce anything worth reading, looking at, watching, listening to, or who don't actually produce anything full stop in their lives. The paradigm, though rough and flawed as it is, can be taken forward to sport. Sport is often assumed to be the natural habitat of winners. But the reality is that many of the people who excel at sport do so because they found it offered an escape from their inability to negotiate everyday life in the same way that imaginative and intellectual pursuits are escape routes for those who are creatively or scientifically inclined. People who are frustrated and limited in some ways often find that sport, like art, like music, like writing, like creative pursuits, allow them to excel in others. It is established that for some, the rewards of being out on the pitch make up for the lot of satisfaction and fulfilment that they otherwise have in their life. You only have to look at Paul Gascoigne, who I mentioned earlier, who was probably the finest British footballer produced in the post-war period, but unfortunately didn't have the requisite emotional and mental maturity to deal with his gifts, or indeed his demons. For other people, sport offers an arena in which to prove themselves and to excel where excellence has denied them in other pursuits. The racing driver Jackie Stewart was very honest in saying that his drive came from failing at school, from being humiliated and embarrassed over his inability to perform academic tasks. If you go back and listen to our first chat with Andy Hodge, he, you know, he said that rowing kind of made him and saved him in some ways. He wasn't outstanding at school or any of those things. So, if the sporting and creative minds alike find fulfilment in the worlds of the imagination um, and fulfilment that the real world doesn't offer, then how do they impact on us as rowers and musicians, or rowers who paint, or rowers who write, or indeed anyone listening to this who inhabits both worlds where you are physically able and active, but also creative and intellectually able and active? Samuel Johnson, good old Sam, good old quotable Sam, described it as the hunger of the imagination, a hunger that's difficult to feed because it's ever-present even when you fed it. So, one of the ways that I would think about it is when we work through the mechanics and we reach a state of grace in either pursuit, in either craft, in either, di either discipline, in either practice, we get into the zone. Now, we've all heard the idea about sportsmen getting into the zone, but we, we can all do it. And the zone is when we are completely absorbed in what we are doing. It's a realm that is talked about in art and sport and things like that, but we really can all do it. We did it as children when we would just lock ourselves into our own imaginative world and time would cease to exist and we wouldn't think of anything else. We're coaxed out of it and trained out of it by the demands of modern society, but it's all still within us. So that zone, that realm that all artists and sportsmen dream about, that's the point where everything clicks and everything flows and we are completely absorbed in the moment. And an example of that 
might be, and this is an odd example because it wasn't an example of, of effortless power and glorious rowing, but when we did the length of the Thames, on the third day we went through Chertsey Lock and we'd come down from Henley that morning and we still had a way to go to reach Malty. Um And we hit a zone. It's not necessarily always transcendent perfection. At that point, we've probably done about 32 miles in the day and we probably had about nine miles still to go. And I remember that my hands were aching from the strain of picking up my body weight 18 to 20 times a minute for the last eight, nine hours in a boat. My shoulders, which were an, are an essential part of the linkage that connects the drive of the legs to the handle of the oar, to the blades in the water that the boat has moved past, um, it felt like two devils had taken up residence in the sockets and they were eating their way through their trapezius muscles towards the nape of my neck. Um, it, it hurt, every bit of my body hurt from top to toe. When I licked my lips, I could taste the, the salt from the sweat that's dried on them. The high points on my cheekbones where the sun had caught them felt like tissue paper, despite the zinc cream that I've had on my face. Even though I'd been throwing water and food down my body all day, I remember that I was starving. So I'm, I'm hungry, I'm dehydrated, I'm in pain. Um, but we're three days into this trip down the Thames. And even though I'm aware of all of these physical discomforts and the way that they're making me feel emotionally, I'm still locked into a zone. I'm not outside of pain. None of us are in the boat. But we do feel like we're moving outside of time, sculling down a never-ending river. It's not effortless power um, rather than powerless effort. It has, after all, been a long day at that point. But the, the components that make up good rowing are there. Rhythm, time, awareness, feel. Everything is in sharp focus. Everything is magnified. Everything is slowed down, even though the boat is moving as well as it was first thing in the morning. The sense of determination in the boat is palpable. I can, I can feel what Matt and Ben and Ali are feeling as if we're saving our breath and our thoughts to get through the last stretch of a long day. This, is, this was rowing with game faces on type stuff. When you're closing it out and you're putting a finish on the work and you're doing it well, it felt relentless. It felt together. It felt like an invisible thread attached to the boat pulling us towards Molesy, towards a hot shower, towards hot food. It felt like following a line of notes all the way through to finish and done. And music can put you in that same zone. There are times when you can play something and you're not in the zone, you're just playing it mechanically. But there are times when you are completely aware of every single thing that you're doing and every single sound that you're making and everything around you. And I'm going to leave it there because I think I've made my point. Music and rowing, I think they are fundamentally the same. I think they are both disciplines, both crafts, both practices. I think that they are niche in terms of where they occupy in the cultural landscape, but I think that they are vital for those of us who practice them. I think that we find ourselves in them. I think that we end up self-identifying with it. I think that it's true that we all start from the same place of it's really, really hard to learn how to row and it's really, really hard to learn how to play a musical instrument just to, just to get the basics into your hands, into your fingers, into your brain, into your understanding. And then to actually become really good at it takes hours of work on mechanical things, dedicated work. 
and we do it with other people and when we do it with other people and we work hard on it being in a boat is like being in a band I've done both they are the same they are the same same humor same connection same camaraderie same sense of purpose same everything and then when if we work if we work the mechanics enough and we work them long enough and we work them hard enough and we have purposeful practice there are moments when everything just picks up and swings and it feels like the best thing ever happy christmas everyone <laughs>